You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. they're going to kill you. I don't care. I'm sharing the Word of God. I'm not going to obey men. I'm going to obey God. Wow. When we have that passion, can you imagine? Can you imagine? People are dying and going to hell. Our loved ones are dying and going to hell. Going to hell forever. We'll be separated from God the Father forever. Total darkness. And we're sitting back passively and allowing that to happen. Are you diligently sharing the Word of God with others? In today's message from Pastor Dave, he encourages you to passionately share the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, and how will others be saved if you never share with them? Be an active witness for the Lord. The Spirit will empower you to be bold. Now here's Pastor Dave in the book of Acts chapter 4. As he begins his message, the council opposes his name. Four, 15 to 22, we're going to finally complete the trial. We're finally going to get to the end of the trial, this first trial in the book of Acts that we come across. So if you'll turn there, I'll read aloud. If you want to read along silently, please, Acts 4, 15 to 22. But when they had commanded them going to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves saying, what shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them, because the people, since they glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old, on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. In the early 1500s, there was a young priest and theology teacher who was seeking God. He had been reading the scriptures and studying Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Upon reading Romans 1, 17, he read, for in it, the it here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Being Roman Catholic, this priest had been taught theology that stated that faith alone cannot justify a man, and that only the works of faith such as in active in charity and in good works, through those can a man be justified. The benefits of good works could be obtained by donating money to the church. For him, this man, the righteousness of God was a condemning righteousness. 
And seeing the righteousness of God as God's standard, his standard for judgment, usually brought this man to despair because he knew he couldn't live up to God's righteousness. However, little by little, as he sought the Lord, he began to understand. And finally the day came when he saw that God gives his own righteousness to make man righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. In Romans 3, verse 22, it says, the righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. This revelation turned this man's life upside down. He would later acknowledge that the revelation came solely by the Holy Spirit as he studied the scriptures. I'm sure you've guessed by now the priest's name was Martin Luther. The revelation that he got changed the face of religion. It changed religion as they knew it in that time. In fact, in the year 1517, Luther strongly disputed the claim that freedom from God's punishment of sin could be purchased with money. Luther wrote to his bishop protesting the sale of indulgences. These were things that you could buy that would help you with your sin, these indulgences. He insisted that since forgiveness was God's alone to grant, those who claimed that indulgences absolved buyers from the punishments and granted them salvation, they were in error. Christians, he said, must not be slackened in following Christ on account of such false assurances. Luther taught that salvation is not earned by good deeds, but but is only received as a free gift of God's grace and through faith in Jesus Christ as a redeemer for sin. Luther's theology challenged the authority of the Pope, and it challenged the authority of the Roman Catholic teaching at that time. He challenged the authority that said that the Bible is the only source of divinely revealed knowledge. He confronted these indulgent salespeople with his 95 theses. His refusal to retract all his writings by the demand of Pope Leo X in 1520 and the Holy Roman Empire Charles V in 1522 resulted in his excommunication by the Pope and his condemnation as an outlaw of the emperor. Interesting, though, Luther was known as a very, very law-abiding citizen. He was a mild-mannered man. And to publish his thoughts and direction in such a way, this would be strongly against his character. Why did he do it? Have you ever really thought about the righteousness we have in Jesus Christ? Does the righteousness revealed in Jesus Christ motivate you in any way? This righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ makes it possible for men and women like you and me to stand before a holy God sinless. Think about it. This righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ makes it possible for us to obtain eternal life. Think about it. And this righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ frees us from the frustration of trying to earn our righteousness by good works and earn our way into heaven. The sole requirement for obtaining this righteousness, faith. Has there ever been any better news than this? When we come to an understanding of this righteousness of God, God's righteousness, our lives will change completely forever, just like Martin Luther's. But Luther had to make a choice. Luther had to now come to a choice. Once he realized what God was saying Through the scriptures, Luther was faced with a choice, a dilemma. We've talked about dilemmas before. We're going to talk about dilemmas again today. He was faced with a choice. Was he supposed to obey God or was he supposed to obey man's traditions? Who did he obey? 
Was he going to continue to preach the justification by faith, going against the traditions and the religious rights of man? This would no doubt make him an enemy of a church. He would be excommunicated because we know that he did. Or would he recant? Would he recant his theories as the Pope wished? The choice was his. Obey God or obey man. This was the choice that we're giving to our two apostles who are on trial now for healing the lame man in the gate beautiful. You remember the story back in chapter 3? After they healed the lame man, after through Jesus Christ, they healed the lame man at the gate beautiful, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees and the Pharisees conferred, and they got this council together, and they brought Paul, and they brought John, and they even brought the lame man, and they stood him in their midst. And you have to understand, when it says in their midst, the council met in almost like a semicircle. They were like almost like an oval here, and they were standing in the middle of them. It wasn't like them standing before a courtroom today where you, like you're standing there and I'm standing up here. They were in the midst. So that's what they mean by in the midst there. We've talked about it before, but we have several different dilemmas. First, there was the dilemma faced with the two apostles. They had a dilemma. They had a choice to make. If they were found guilty in healing a man and being part of a healing in the man by any other name than Jehovah, according to the scriptures, the Old Testament, they could be put to death. So what did they say? This was the Jewish law. That's why the council asked them only one question. You know, this trial only consisted of one question. There was only one question there in Acts 4, 7. By what power or by what name have you done this? That was the only question asked in the trial. The council was asking a self-incriminating question. They were trying to trap the apostles in their own words. But Peter did not hesitate to share the gospel message with these men. Peter, now filled with the Holy Spirit, speaks boldly the word of God right into the council. He stands before the Sanhedrin and speaks boldly right into the council the word of God. And he says in Acts 4, 10 through 12, that by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Hallelujah. Praise God. Peter displayed a righteous boldness. We talked about this last week. This came by being filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter speaks the gospel message clearly and distinctly. Peter clearly tells the council who was responsible for healing this man. Peter places the ball back in the council's court. It's almost like they're playing tennis. It says, okay, here we go. And he volleys it back into the council's court, and they now have that. Peter basically tells them exactly what they wanted to hear. Peter told them exactly what they wanted to hear. This leads us to our second dilemma. What was the council going to do? What were the council's choices? Council, we know, they had a deliberation. We talked about that last week. They deliberated. Remember how they viewed these men from before them? They saw the boldness. They took notice and said, you know, this boldness is strange. They perceived that these men were uneducated and untrained. These men did not have the fine educations that they had. How could they possibly be quoting these scriptures in front of us? How could they possibly be telling us what we already know about our God? How dare they come up and so boldness and tell us about this Jesus? This fact that they quoted the scriptures caused them to marvel with admiration. They marveled with admiration as they looked at the knowledge of these men. But they came to a major conclusion. We talked about this last week. A major conclusion was made by the council that these men had been with Jesus. These men had been with Jesus and they're thinking, wow. Now they were trapped in their own dilemma. 
They were trapped in their own dilemma. So as we begin our study, we look at verses 15 and 16. It says, when they had commanded them to go outside of the council, they conferred amongst themselves saying, what shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. What do we do? I can imagine looking around at each other like, what should we do now? How do you deny the lame man? He's standing right there. He's now walking. For 40 years, he's been lame, and there he stands, whole, leaping, and praising God. And all these other people around him are glorifying God. What should we do? How are we going to do something? And notice they said, what shall we do to these men? I like that. What should we do to these men? We have to do something to them. I mean, we're the authorities here. We're the power. We should do something to these guys. But they can't deny the miracle. They can't deny what is standing before them. They can't deny the evidence standing before them. The man was lame. Now he's whole. They can't deny it. The only conclusion they came to was that they had been with Jesus. But that doesn't compute because to their knowledge, Jesus was dead. They would with Jesus, but wait a minute, didn't we kill him? Didn't we have him killed, or wasn't he put to death by the Romans? He was dead. It's interesting here that we need to mention that the Sanhedrin never considered or even tried to discredit the apostles' claim to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, half of the council, or over half of the council, remember we said, were Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection, but they never tried to dispute the claim of the resurrection. I find that most interesting. The only thing the council did was they took notice of Peter and John's courage and the confidence in which Peter spoke. And they took notice of Peter's words. He quoted scripture. He correctly applied the scriptures to the thing. And this complicated their head. This really bogged them down. And I think it's neat to worth mention here that the miracle alone was not proof of Jesus' resurrection. Neither were John, uh, Peter's words alone proof of the resurrection. Because Satan performs miracles, and Satan will again perform miracles in the last days. You can read that in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 to 10. And we know that there are false prophets who do wonders in the world. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. It's the miracle and the message in the context of everything that had happened since Pentecost, which was more evidence that Jesus Christ was alive and at work in the church through his Holy Spirit. That's what they were talking about. Peter used the Old Testament to support his claims. This is one more evidence of a true prophet. Again, Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 5, and Isaiah 8, 20. The bottom line is that miracles are not a substitute for God's word. Miracles alone do not cause people to come to salvation. You can look at that in Luke 16, 27 to 31. Faith comes by hearing and hearing God's word. If the council had considered the evidence and they had meekly listened to the message, they might have been saved. They might have come to the knowledge. In fact, they might have been looking right here and really scratching their head. We're going to get that to the minute. That's happening to one of them. We're going to get that to the minute. But they allowed the traditions of men, they allowed the religious rites to be placed before the word of God. They were always in conflict with what that means. Should we serve our traditions or should we serve God? Nothing's changed. It's still the same that we deal with today. Should we serve man or should we serve God? We'll talk about that more in a minute. But this dilemma is very similar to the one that the priests and the elders faced not too long ago during Passover when they tried to trap Jesus in the temple. In fact, in Matthew 21, verses 23 through 27, it says, Now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority 
are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which is if you tell me, likewise, I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then do you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and says, we don't know. And he said to him, neither will I tell you what authority I do these things. His response was proof that miracles alone can't convict and convert the lost sinner. But we find out in John eleven forty five to 453 and in Acts 14, 1 to 20, only the word of God can do that. It's only the word of God. We need to go to a side here and take a minute, take a little shortcut here. And we've been talking a lot when we studied the book of Genesis on Wednesday nights. We've been talking a lot about the providential hand of God and how God works things in our lives even before we were saved and brings them through in our lives and how he's working things now in our lives by his providential hand. And we had the great story of Joseph to back that up. We had the great story of Abraham. My question is, how did Dr. Luke who is the author of the book of Acts, know what the council was saying. It says they threw them all out and they conferred among themselves. How did Dr. Luke know that? Well, you might say, well, the Holy Spirit told him. Well, yeah, that's one probable possibility. But you know, in that council, there was somebody else. There's this really young Pharisee, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, born of the tribe of Benjamin, who was sitting there and he was listening to everything. His name was Saul of Tarsus. And he would later have an experience on the road to Damascus. And Jesus said, your name will be Paul. And he became Paul the apostle. He was in that Sanhedrin. And he probably was watching and hearing. You see God's providential hand on him. Did the apostles know that they were preaching to the next apostle? Did they know that they were preaching to one of the greatest missionaries that ever lived for the gospel of Christ? No, they didn't know that. You never know who's watching. You never know who's listening when you share the gospel message. You never know the results, only God knows, because we know the scripture says, my word does not come back void. When his word goes into the air, somebody will be listening. When the word goes into the air by your life, somebody's watching, and they'll want to know, oh yeah, I remember. And when it all clicks together, when the Holy Spirit finally on their day of salvation clicks everything together, they're going to go, Wow, it all makes sense. And they start to see how God worked in their lives all along and how they talked to this person and how this person talked to them and how this life or this... And all of a sudden they go, wow. And it all makes sense. You never know who's watching. You never know who's listening. Never. Even Saul didn't know it. Even the apostle Paul, who was Saul at that time, didn't know that God was working in his heart. The council comes to a conclusion. This is what we'll do. Let's threaten them. Yeah, yeah, let's threaten them. Let's shake our fingers at him and threaten him not to do this anymore. Look what it says in the next verse. But so that it spreads no further. I love how they say it. So that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. What was their conclusion? Let it die a natural death. Ignore it and they'll go away. But let's threaten them. Let's threaten them. Let's threaten them to forbid using the name of Jesus Christ. Isn't this just like the world? Let's silence the church. Let's keep the church quiet so we can't hear about this Jesus any longer. Let's silence the church. The world is, Satan's been trying to silence the church since day one, and the world is continually trying to silence the church in our lifetime. Can't say Merry Christmas. Now they're even challenging Easter. 
and trying to get Easter out of various things. And heaven, heaven forbid, you pray aloud at a sporting event. Have you ever witnessed a sporting event where they pray, where they have the invitation? We're not going to have the invocation by, and they get up there, and they'll pray to every single name in heaven except Jesus. Oh, yeah, that's a godly prayer. That was great. The world is still trying to silence us because they think it's offensive. Offensive to whom? I really believe that inside of people, the world is jonesing and really wanting Christians to stand up and be Christians. They really would like to see Christians stand up and really say, wow, that person's really convicted about what they say, and they really believe that message that they're trying to tell me. I think that's what the world's looking for. The world's looking for somebody that they can count on, looking for somebody they can relate to. But what do they get? They get Christians killing doctors at abortion clinics in the name of God. They get a man stoning his neighbor because God told him to. This is what the world sees. This is what the world says, oh, these crazy Christians. I think the world's looking for conviction in Christians. They don't think the world's jonesing for Christians to stand up and say, we believe in God. And we believe in Jesus Christ. He's the only way to heaven. But these first Christians, these guys really believe. They really believe. They believe that the gospel was the power of God to salvation. They wanted all to come to the knowledge of the truth. We seem to be content in taking a back seat. We seem to be content in sitting back and going, yeah, you know, um, I'm pretty comfortable. I don't want to make any waves. And I mean, after all, you know, this religion stuff, it's kind of personal. You know, I, I like it to be personal to me. I don't, you know, I'm not the kind of guy that shares my faith. You know, I, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm going to be quiet about it. The creator of the universe is living inside you and you want to be quiet about it? We're going to find out that these guys, at the end of this chapter, these guys are burning so much they can't but speak the truth. They can't but. It's like, it wants to explode in them. Would that we would have that kind of relationship with God through Jesus Christ that it would just burn in our bodies, that it would just be so on fire that we couldn't help but speak the name of Jesus. Would that we would be like that. Oh, my goodness. You talk about changing the world. 120 people, men and women, changed the world. They turned it upside down. Why? Because they had that burning within them through the Holy Spirit. They had this burning, this passion to share God's word at all costs. Well, they're going to kill you. I don't care. I'm sharing the word of God. I'm not going to obey men. I'm going to obey God. Wow. Would we have that passion? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? People are dying and going to hell. Our loved ones are dying and going to hell going to hell forever. We'll be separated from God the Father forever. Total darkness. And we're sitting back passively and allowing that to happen. They're not pointing, guys. I'm pointing right here, please. I'm just as guilty as the next person because we're too passive. We're too content in our Christianity. And we're sitting back and we're holding back when the world's groaning. Tell us. We want to know. It's a sad thing. Very sad. It's a sad thing, but Satan will always attempt to silence his church. These people threaten, and we're threatened not to speak in his name. And we're going to continue to read how thousands upon thousands of people came to the Lord because they wouldn't hold back. You are Our time with you is running short for today's edition of A Sure Hope. Pastor Dave will continue this journey through the book of Acts when you join us next time. But for now, you can listen to this teaching and others from this series online at assurehoperadio.com. We'd encourage you to download these messages so they are available wherever you are. We know how busy life can get, but there's always a time to pause, even if only for a few minutes. 
Those short breaks could be filled with the study of God's Word and the uncovering of treasures from its verses. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, gaining access to the latest messages as soon as they're posted. Find out more at assurehoperadio.com. If you're looking for a church family and happen to be in the Cape May area, we'd love to have you come join us for a time of worship and Bible study. Calvary Chapel Cape May meets weekly on Sundays at 10 a.m. And we offer nursery and Sunday school where your children will be well cared for as they learn about the love of Jesus. Give us a call for more information. Our number is 609-884-5821. Again, that's 609-884-5821. Thanks for listening to today's message from the book of Acts. We pray you continue to be blessed as you study the Word and that you'll discover Jesus working in your life. Pastor Dave will be back soon for another in-depth look at this New Testament book right here on A Sure Hope.